0: Baby, you understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes
1: wrong, you see some bad
0: Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. Electronic monitoring is often portrayed as an alternative to incarceration. Courts are too busy. Dockets are way too full. There aren't enough public defenders available. There's no room in the jails. So just slap an anklet on people. You see that stuff on TV all the time. I mean, it kind of strikes me as a perverse version of wildlife tagging, a cop version of catch and release. Possibly I'm being unfair. I need to learn more. And, well, I'm in luck. There's a new report from the Prison Policy Initiative on electronic monitoring. It's entitled, Not an Alternative, The Myths, Harms, and Expansion of Pretrial Electronic Monitoring. With me on Zoom to talk about that report is the Prison Policy Initiative's communications strategist, Wanda Bertram. Wanda, thanks for joining us. Hey, Doug. Electronic monitoring has been sold to policymakers and the public as a viable tool for a 21st century criminal legal system. Have we been sold a bill of goods...
1: Mm, I would say yes. Um, what we what we did in this in this briefing, this new report we uh, released recently, is that uh, we looked at the evidence behind electronic monitoring, specifically used for people released pretrial. So just like you said in in your opener, there, a lot of counties are uh, facing you know high pretrial populations, and you know what what we've seen. Over the last couple of decades is that to deal with that counties have adopted money bail right so systems that allow people to go free pre trial as long as they. Uh, can pay a certain bail amount to the court or they can enlist the help of a bail bondsman right a private company now that's becoming less popular. Um, and counties are turning to something else, which is electronic monitoring uh, so electronic monitors are provided again by private companies, some of the same companies you might be familiar with if you've been looking at prisons for a while geo group. Securus, right? Some those are some of the big providers. And what counties will do is they'll release people with an electronic ankle monitor on. And what the data show is that this is simply not necessary. We already know that releasing people pre-trial just on their own recognizance, just saying go you should go free pre-trial, you don't we haven't found that you pose a specific danger to any specific person or persons and you have to come back to court or else you're gonna get fined, that works, right? There's certain conditions that you can put on people pre-trial, but there's nothing that shows that having an ankle monitor on somebody is actually going to help in terms of public safety or in terms of helping bring them back to court. So that's what our report is about. And uh, more broadly, I, I think if you look at it, kind of if you, if you zoom out, what we really see is that counties are being, uh, counties are being kind of taken in by these companies, or you might say, uh, willfully going along with a a profit-making scheme that these companies are offering, putting people on ankle monitors even when it's completely unnecessary.
0: So now the technology of these things, I understand they're they're based on GPS and, and of course different GPS devices, there's different technologies, they all have different levels of accuracy and precision. And because it's something as important as, you know, like freedom, you know, criminal charges, the threat of prison, you know, one would wish that courts would use the best and most accurate technology, which would probably be the most expensive. That's what one would wish. But I wasn't born yesterday. How accurate really is the technology for these things?
1: Well... Uh, Unfortunately, there have been a lot of errors. Um, There was one study in Chicago uh, that found that 80% of the alerts that were generated by electronic ankle monitors for people on pretrial release were not actionable. Right. So it was basically a fluke. Um, Now, how can that happen? That can happen in a variety of ways. Uh, You could be at work and you have to be on your feet for a long time. You don't have time to get to a, um, a place where you can charge the electronic monitor and the battery dies. Right. That sends a signal to the supervising official. You might just get a, a totally wacky GPS reading. Um, one of our friends uh, in Wisconsin was um, he was he was tagged as violating his pro, uh, supervision when the GPS found him to be in the middle of Lake Michigan. Um, there's uh, I think beyond that, what's interesting is that people will um, people can easily, violate the terms of their supervision while they're on, on an ankle monitor more easily than they can um, when they're on, you know, regular old supervision. We already, um, you know, we, we already know that, that, you know, typical probation and parole causes a lot of people to go back to prison for doing things that are not criminal offenses, right? Um, failing a drug test, missing a meeting uh, with their parole officer, not going, you know, not making a certain class that they're supposed to attend, losing their employment, things like that. Um, but electronic monitoring adds, uh, it, it it's, it's, it, it adds a whole host of other conditions, right? It's, it puts a limit on where you can go geographically. Um, it adds a uh, certain stress, um, uh, because you have to, again, you have to charge this thing. Um, and, and all of the, uh, all of the geographic requirements of, a, of, of supervision are just, they just become tighter when you have an ankle monitor on somebody. And I, I want to stress this this really disrupts people's lives ideally on supervision if you think about what these systems are supposed to be for these are these are systems that are supposed to help get people back on a in a, on a better path right if you've been to jail whether or not you were guilty what supervision is supposed to do is is get you on a path such that you don't end up back in the court system and that's that is uh the per- that purpose is completely contradicted by the experience of being thrown back in jail for something that is not a crime say you 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 know you wander outside the bounds of where you're supposed to be on your ankle monitor and it's not a false alarm right still is that something that we want to send someone back to prison for right if they're on parole is that really why we want to make them serve out the remainder of their sentence um uh, is, you know, missing an appointment with your parole officer or, or failing a drug test because you relapse? Is that really, you know, is, is incarceration really the way that we want to respond to that? I, th- I think not. Um, and, and ankle monitors, you know, whether they're for people who are released pretrial or on supervision, they, they just double down on that aspect.
0: I uh, referred earlier to there being no room in the jails. And it's this case, that's the case in practically every county across the country. Um, the argument goes that these monitors as an alternative to incarceration um, will help relieve overcrowding. So is is that ever really the case?
1: Well, uh, it, in many places, uh, I'll, I'll just say it's complicated, right? Um, counties will pitch uh, electronic monitoring as a means of reducing the jail population. But there's a couple of issues with that one of them is that if you're putting people on monitors that are uh, extremely prone to violating people for again these um these minor behaviors then you're really just delaying the incarceration you're not you're not actually reducing it and then another issue is that it in many of the same places that are uh, increasing ankle monitoring there there is not a sustained and um robust effort going on to actually reduce the number of people who are caged pre-trial um that effort for instance might look like reducing the incarceration of people who can't who you know were just locked up because they couldn't pay a supervision fee right um decriminalizing drugs or reducing the policing of drugs um and instead we're seeing counties kind of going in the opposite direction right now where they're relying more and more on jails so what happens is uh counties expand electronic monitoring but at the same time the jail population goes up so uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that, you know, local lawmakers are lying when they say, you know, this is going to get people out of jail. Um, we'll put them on electronic monitors. Yes, by definition, if someone's on an ankle monitor, they are no longer locked up. Um, but in, in multiple places, including San Francisco and Houston, Texas, we have evidence showing that even as ankle monitoring exploded, the jail population stayed the same or they rose.
0: See so, you now, drug courts. One of the things, one of the problems with drug courts has always been the 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 instance of net widening. I mean, you you created drug courts okay. so that you get a sort of safety valve to uh, to release the court doctors to release, make more room. But the problem is that the response by law enforcement is to just shove more people into the system, so that it's not um it's it's so that that safety valve forget the safety valve. It's 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 back to being uh, it's back to being under too much pressure again. It's um it, it's it it in some respect it. It's viewed as some kind of a reform but in fact it has a perverse sort of opposite effect um i wonder if that might be happening here with the i mean like i say certainly with in terms of drug courts if you do if you look at a chart of the growth of drug courts from 1990 through you know through today and then you look at the number of drug arrests in the u.s overall Mm -hmm. it's like those things are just block step growing Growing, growing. The more drug courts, the more drug arrests. Like I say, they just they just keep pushing more people into the system. So instead of relieving the pressure, they just maintain that excess pressure all the way through. Hmm.
1: I I think that's I, I mean I, that that is very true about drug courts in some places. And I do I I want to expand on what you're saying about net widening because that's for your listeners that might not really be you know using in that term in the way that we use it in the criminal justice reform space a lot. What that means is. Uh, doing criminal justice reform in a way that brings people who were not previously at risk of incarceration uh, into the sphere where they are at risk of incarceration. So, you know, for example, um, if you just, uh, one one example of how you would widen the net is just increasing, um, you know, policing for um, uh, traffic or parking infractions, right? Right. Um, you, you know, you, you you can start to you if you start enforcing that more, right? People get tickets. Some of the people aren't going to be able to pay their tickets, those people end up having to go to court. Maybe you have a bench warrant out for some minor thing that you did a while ago. Then you're, you know, that you know the prosecutor stacks some charges against you, then all of a sudden you're in jail, right? So something that doesn't appear to actually be that much of a tough on crime position can actually lead to um a widening of the net. What is so striking to me about electronic monitoring? Is that it's it is so punitive, right? Um, putting somebody on an ankle monitor, I I think strikes a lot of lawmakers as you know just a, a sensible solution to uh, public safety risks associated with pretrial release. Um, you know because they're you know that that's they don't think about this thing that's going to go on someone's body, but it is really invasive. Um, it's like I was saying, it's really prone to violating people for, you know, behaviors that are not crimes or even for generating false alarms. And at the same time, what it does is it actually keeps people from living out their lives. Um, we've heard from many people that, that electronic monitors, uh, uh functionally disable them from going to the doctor or going to the pharmacy, which is a big deal because people who are in people who you know, demographically are more likely to go to jail tend to also have chronic health problems. There's also the issue of having to pay fines and fees, um, right? So typically people who are on ankle monitors have to pay a daily or a weekly or a monthly fee um, for the privilege of being incarcerated in their own communities. By the way, I could hear um, the air
0: quotes when you use the word privilege. So. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. I mean, and I'm quoting directly from our, our report, which um, my wonderful colleague Emmett wrote, and he I think he put privilege in air quotes as well. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's shocking to me because it is so um, it, it's so disruptive to the way people would typically live, even compared to normal supervision. Uh, and and so people, you know, lawmakers locally are are doing this, you know, widening of the net for no reason. Um, and even, you know, like, like we were talking about before, even as they typically, you know, neglect to pursue other efforts to reduce the jail population.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Wanda Bertram, communications strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. We're talking about electronic shackles, also referred to as electronic monitoring in the context of pretrial release. These things, though unfit for purpose, are also being used more and more for monitoring of people sentenced to community so-called corrections, probation and parole. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Now let's hear the rest of that conversation with Wanda Bertram, communication strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. You mentioned fees. Now, here in Oregon, my home, the legislature amended state law to remove authorizing language for those fees. Right. But we didn't ban the practice entirely. And in fact, I have you know, right on my on my on my computer screen right now. I have the official website for Clatsop County, Oregon. And on the page entitled Community Correction Fees, it says, quote, electronic house arrest slash electronic monitoring. A intake. It's a intake. Fifty bucks. B okay. daily rate. Fifteen bucks. So that's Clatsop County. I mean, around the rest of the county on average, how much are people being paid to uh, for the privilege, air quotes again, to uh, privilege of wearing these things?
1: It, it really varies. Um, I was shocked when I first learned how much people are paying. And I think most people don't really, I think most people who are not familiar with the system would be shocked as well. And $15 a day, for people who are typically, you know, if you look at the pretrial population, typically making around $15,000 a year, um, is it's an extraordinary amount. Um, People are paying across the country anywhere from, uh, well, in some places I should should acknowledge they don't have fees for electronic monitors, um, like in Cook County, Illinois, where we focused our briefing. Uh, But in other places, people are paying anywhere from $5 a day to $20 a day, um, you know, for, you know, in order to be on these monitors, plus any other kind of ancillary fees that they might incur, like that intake fee that you mentioned. Um, This is burdensome for folks, right? Counties may not automatically reincarcerate people for failing to pay these fees, but it does add up and it does stay with you, right? There's no easy way of getting that expunged. Um, So you end up, you know, if you're lucky and if you you know, if you if you get out of your period of electronic monitoring without going back to jail, and you know you go you you come through the court system all right, you still have this you still have this debt, right? I think that like one of the one of the things that is scariest about EM electronic monitoring is the way that it, the way that it's expanding and we don't even know. If you asked me to you know how much how much money how much revenue our county is bringing in from electronic monitoring i couldn't tell you because most places are not reporting how many people are on em and there hasn't been very good federal data collection on these on these things the last you know last time we checked uh or last time anyone got national data it was about 150,000 people nationwide on electronic monitors but all of the local anecdotal evidence we have suggests that it's skyrocketed over the last few years. So we really don't know how big it is.
0: I mean, probation and parole is one thing, but if it's pretrial release and if the court dockets are really badly crowded, as so many are these days, I mean, someone's just coining it. At, well, yeah. assuming assuming people can even pay the fees, you mentioned that they can. Let's go back to that. If a person can't afford to keep on paying those fees, Clatsop um, County seven. What is that? Seven times fifteen is uh, hundred and five bucks a week. Mm-hmm. How much plus the uh, the the initial fee to get it going? Um, how much? Uh, what happens when they can't afford to keep
1: paying? Uh, I think that probably would depend on the county um presumably either you are it, it it just becomes a debt that you owe and you uh you may be able to pay it back on your own terms or it may be automatically garnished um from from your you know from your bank account which is not uncommon in the with criminal justice debt to have it automatically taken out of you know any money that you make um worst case scenario you could be reincarcerated um for failing to pay because they're you know unlike money bail you know there hasn't been Um, there hasn't really been a commensurate trend with electronic monitoring of ruling that people can only be levied fines that they are, you know, realistically able to pay. So, and what's, you know, what's insane about this is that we already know from the, the, the huge progress that's been made to reduce the use of money bail, that this is not necessary for pretrial. You can let people go, um, and you can just give them, uh, uh, you know, some, some conditions for pretrial supervision um, or pretrial release and say, you got to come back to court on this day. You can condition that with, you know, a potential fine if you want, come back or you're going to be fined. That has good results. The, like the number of people that, that under those conditions that commit any sort of new crime or are subject to any kind of, kind of new arrest while they're on release is extremely low. Uh, And there is really no, there's no research to support the idea that putting them on electronic monitors is going to actually help. Uh, And yet counties are pursuing this. It's like you could, you could just end money bail, but instead they're ending money bail and then they're, uh, or they're not ending money bail and then putting people on electronic monitors.
0: So obvious problems of the technology, the monitors, the, these, these, these monitors, electronic shackles aren't working like policymakers thought they would. And, but the problems go way beyond that. Your report found there are a lot of actual harms that result from the use of these things. Well, the financial burden for one, I guess. Um, talk to me about the harms of these things.
1: Right. I mean, I mentioned this a little bit before, but people, you know, people have reported that they are not able to attend family events, um, not able to go to the doctor, not able to go to the pharmacy, um, may even have trouble getting employment. Uh, if if you're, you know, if you if you have the kind of job where you sit at a desk all day, like I do, um, then you're probably going to be fine on an ankle monitor because you're not moving around. If you have the kind of job where you are moving around all day. You know, certain kinds of service work, construction work, waste management, that could be an issue. And the three industries I just mentioned are the three that are uh, typically most, you know, most likely to employ formerly incarcerated people. So it's, it's, you know, extremely counterproductive, even by, you know, even by our own um I, I, in my opinion, flawed standards of what constitutes successful, um, pre release and, and, you know, probation and parole supervision, people aren't able to get jobs, um, or to retain jobs. It's, I think that it, 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 you know, that it's only a matter of time before lawmakers acknowledge just how counterproductive this technology is, but in many ways it's, it's too late because it's already out there. Um, and courts are already, you know, they, they find it very easy to, um, put people on ankle monitors rather than, you know, just releasing them pre-trial or having any other kind of substantial solution.
0: It's not fit for purpose. They're even causing great harm, but and yet the the use of these things has actually been expanding. That's right. Man, what can people do?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think that this is one of the issues where I would say uh, doing some citizen activism is a, is a really good idea just looking into you know your county's expansion of electronic monitoring particularly if your county or your city has been uh, has been uh doing efforts to reform um pre-trial release you know just generally um there you know it, it this is not this stuff is not set in stone and i think if people catch it you know if if there's you know if there's an awareness of the proposal to expand electronic monitoring early it's possible that the, you know those proposals could be rolled back part of the reason that we did this report uh was because Uh, Illinois, as as you may know, passed this groundbreaking law earlier this year to end money bail and ended cash bail for everybody forever in Illinois, which was wonderful. Um, And then uh, recently, the State Office of Pretrial Services just announced uh, we're going to be rolling out an electronic monitoring system that covers 70 of the state's 102 counties. So our report is partly, um, you know, partly intended to raise awareness of this so that you know, with with the hope of putting pressure on the pretrial services office to roll this back or at least to not use it very much. And I think that that's that's a possibility in other places as well.
0: Hey, I'll throw in looking at Oregon's example, it's not enough to just fiddle around with the uh, with the language. You really have to forbid counties from charging these fees or else they'll they'll just go ahead and do it.
1: Right, right
0: how can people find this issue brief and learn more about the work the prison policy Initiative is doing Do you have a website, social media, that kind of stuff?
1: Yes. Uh, well, you can find all of our work at www.prisonpolicy.org, um, including this report. It's under our publications tab. If you go to briefings, uh, you can find most of our recent short reports there. You can also look into uh, some of the other wonderful work that's been done on electronic monitoring, um, uh, largely by the Challenging Incarceration Project, which is led by a guy named James Kilgore out of Champaign, Illinois, um, and the research of uh, Kate Weisberg um, who has been doing some of the best, but um, at least the best that I've read, uh, long-form studies about, about electronic monitoring and its harms. There is a lot of research out on this, even though it hasn't gotten a ton of media attention. So if you're interested, there's there's a lot of reading material.
0: That was my conversation with Wanda Bertram, communications strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. Find them on the web at prisonpolicy.org. That's prisonpolicy.org. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. While we have time, I recently had the pleasure of attending the 2023 Symposium on Substance Use Research, which was hosted by the Rural Drug Addiction Research Center at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Among the speakers was Dr. Sheila Vacaria, Deputy Director of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance. Dr. Vacaria spoke November 8th on a session entitled, Panel Discussion on Health Impacts of State Policies, Drug Decriminalization and Service Access.
2: You know, I think first and foremost, we have to acknowledge that the criminalization of drug use and the apparatus of Um, policing have been used as a tool of social control for communities of color, uh, new immigrants, for low-income communities and people deemed other. And so by its design, these systems and structures have been used to target these communities. And then when we look at the root of our war on drugs specifically, the ways in which our approach to criminalization rather than regulation or other models of dealing with uh, the public health needs of people who use drugs, Uh, also weaponized um, xenophobic and racist tropes and also uh, tropes about low-income whites and disposable whites. Uh, to advance the criminalization of drugs and drug use. And so by design, our war on drugs has also been a a method and a tool to target communities of color and low-income communities. So um, in many ways, our war on drugs and the criminalization of disproportionately uh, brown and black people and low-income people is our war on drugs working as designed. And so by promoting
1: decriminalization, we
2: are trying to remove uh, drug offenses from the tool toolbox or the toolkit that um, our legal enforcement apparatus uses to target those communities. And so by removing that um, premise for um, engaging with communities of color and low-income white communities as well, we are attempting to build equity into the system. But we have to acknowledge that policy change alone is not gonna be enough to reduce disparities in arrest because as I said from the beginning, uh, policing in and of itself also um, deeply targets certain communities. So by removing uh, drug offenses from uh, the possible qualifying charges for which to target communities of color, um, we are taking one tool out yet the practices can still just instead replace them with other charges that they can often use to to target these communities. But our intention is to have an impact in reducing the targeting of these communities. And then when we think about reducing health disparities among these communities, we have to acknowledge that criminalization is bad for people's health contact with the criminal legal system including arrest and incarceration can disrupt your access to services in the community that you were engaging in and can actually put you at Worst risk for health. We know that access to clean water, heating, air conditioning, um, healthy foods, um, adequate mel- uh, health care, and medication—evidence-based medications like buprenorphine and uh, methadone—are abysmal in our criminal legal system. And for those who receive alternatives to incarceration, such as probation, parole, or drug courts, they still do not have access to those evidence-based services. So we know that when we see racial disparities in overdose death rates right now, as one metric. Um, Um, criminalization of these communities and contact with the criminal legal system could be driving some of those harms.
0: That was Dr. Sheila Vaccaria with the Drug Policy Alliance speaking November 8th on a panel discussion on health impacts of state policies, drug decriminalization, and service access, which was one of the sessions at the 2023 Symposium on Substance Use Research, which was hosted by the Rural Drug Addiction Research Center at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline is a volunteer production for Community Radio and syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's Audio Port Service. Please support your local community radio station. Become a member. Become a volunteer. Find this and other installments of Prison Pipeline on the web at kboo.fm slash prisonpipeline. You'll also find a link there to subscribe to the Prison Pipeline podcast. Prison Pipeline has a Facebook page. It's at facebook.com slash prisonpipeline. Please give its page a like and share it with friends. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long.